0: Well, it's a privilege to have uh, Prosecutor Doug on this podcast. Good morning, Doug. How are you doing?
1: Good morning, Ian. I'm doing fine.
0: And Doug, how long have you been a prosecutor?
1: It'll be 36 years on January
0: 5. Oh, my goodness. Well, congratulations. (laughs) Do you enjoy your job?
1: I really do enjoy it. Um, I've enjoyed it from the first uh, trial I did and now I'm a supervisor and uh, I thoroughly enjoy training new deputy DA's and kind of relearning what I learned back 35 years ago
0: what's your favorite part of the job
1: well I guess it's a tie It would be a tie between being able to do the right thing every day being able to rely upon you know the uh, my gut level feeling of, uh, are we doing the right thing on this? That's, that's one. And then the other thing is helping victims through this process. Many times the victims are forgotten in this thing. The defendants have criminal rights, have, have constitutional rights, but the victims have rights too. And I really do enjoy, I get energy from working with victims and helping them through this and getting them a sense of justice and, uh, restore their loss.
0: What's your least favorite part of the job?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it would be, um, inconveniencing people, jurors that come to court, uh, they don't want to be there, but eventually they do gravitate toward the case. They eventually walk on to the case. They get interested in it, but, uh, trying to tug people along, to the criminal justice system. And then also victims and witnesses getting them to court. And then cases get continued a lot. And so you have to bring them back and back again and again and inconveniencing their their private lives. I don't like that.
0: Well, that's an interesting answer. I I would think it would be uh, stress that this can be a very stressful job.
1: (laughs) Uh, There is stress involved. Um, and if you if you can't handle stress, you shouldn't be in this job. Um, I it it bothers me a little bit, but it doesn't inhibit me. I I I, uh, I know it's a stressful job, but uh, it's it's a worthwhile job, and there's a lot of benefits that outweigh that stress.
0: I think a lot of people would think it's a it's a dangerous job too.
1: Yeah, there are there are some defendants which. Uh, um, I probably should be more, a little bit more aware of what they're doing when they're getting out of prison, but um, we're, if uh, you uh, think about that, you shouldn't be in the job. I don't think about it too much.
0: Well, you're a public servant, and I want to thank you for your service, because again, it's, it's not an easy job. So, thank you for the, your 30 years. Thank you. And what's it like picking a jury? That That seems exciting.
1: Picking a jury is uh, is very interesting. You get to get a little uh, ins- a little bit of peek up in t- inside people's lives. Um, some people like to talk more than others. Basically, you want 12 people that uh, will give you a, uh, a reasonable approach to the law, a reasonable approach, a reason, a reasonable um, um, interest in the case. They'll become interested in it they will listen to the facts and they will adhere to the law and and um it's uh sometimes you use your gut level feeling about how you feel about somebody um and it's it's okay i i do enjoy that process
0: and what do you think in general makes a good prosecutor
1: i think what makes a good prosecutor is Having, uh, being able to prepare your cases. It's a lot of prep, preparation work, getting your witnesses lined up, talking to your witnesses, uh, knowing your facts. You gotta know your facts. You gotta know uh, inside now. You gotta anticipate what, uh, where the defense is gonna come from. Um, you got to treat everybody equal. You gotta treat everybody equal and um last thing uh, uh make sure you never convict a uh, person an innocent person or a person where we don't have the proof
0: i think that's an excellent point um what troubles me about some prosecutors is it's about you know wins and losses but that is a, an excellent point that um you have a, a big responsibility and if something doesn't seem right if you think the person is innocent you just dismiss the case right
1: you dismiss it as fast as you can you get that person out of custody and you and uh you hope that uh what i can can give you one example it was a it was a robbery case at a convenience store and um um the victim identified the suspect About a week after the robbery, cops arrested him. They brought him into court. He was about six foot five. The defense attorney went over and talked to the uh, person in custody, came over to me. Heather was her name, I still remember her talking to me and she says, Doug, we're going to trial on this one. So right away I could sense that there was something amiss about this case. I quickly got my best investigator on the job he went out to that convenience store, <clears throat> took a look around, took some pictures, talked with everybody, <clears throat> and um, and the, the, there was a. If you have ever been in a 7-Eleven store, you got those those numbers six foot, five foot, you know, markings right. on the door. <laughs> those are there for a purpose. Those are there to help the the uh, clerks identify the height.
0: Oh, that's things. interesting. I never knew that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look at next time you go into a 7-Eleven store or a convenience store, you might see that. <clears throat> Long story short, the the video this investigator went and got the video, and the video showed this guy walking out of the store. He was about five foot seven.
0: Ah, yeah. And
1: so, as soon as I got that back at about three thirty in the afternoon, I called up the judge. I said, "We're going to dismiss all cases, Judge. I'd like you to order this guy out of jail." And that was a Friday afternoon. Sure enough, we got that guy out of jail, the six-foot-five fellow, and uh, I was happy
0: about that. Well, good. And you've dealt with a lot of uh, criminal defense attorneys over the years. Um, In your opinion, what makes a good criminal defense attorney?
1: Again, preparation, knowing all the facts, knowing the law, knowing... um, uh, knowing how best to approach the case as far as settlement 95 percent of our cases are what we call settlement cases in other words sentencing cases and because um, the, the evidence that we have these days dna evidence surveillance evidence cell phone evidence text messages it's the the proof that we have is pretty conclusive many times on guilt or innocence and so these defense attorneys they they're pretty much hemmed in on the facts. They they don't have a lot of room to to navigate to steer that defendant to a guilty to a not guilty verdict. But what they can do is know what the sentencing structure is and deal with us prosecutors and try and get the best possible sentence and the best possible result for their for their client. Um, that's a good that's a good yeah. defense attorney.
0: And I've always wondered this about um, public defenders in terms of their resources. Like, if you're a private criminal defense attorney and and your client has a lot of money, you know, you can hire all these different experts, what are the limits with with public defenders? I mean, do they have a budget to work with, or or how does that work? They do have
1: a budget. Um, they're, they're, They're allocated certain amounts of money at the start, of course. But then, if the if the case calls for experts or more um, financial support, uh, hiring additional experts or hiring uh, investigators, special investigators, they can petition the court, and there's there's always a judge assigned to read these requests and fish out, you know, give give money to for that purpose. So public defenders are. Are not hampered by you know no funds they do they do have access to money uh but they just got to demonstrate the need I as see. we do we do too we have to demonstrate a need um, so i don't think they're at a disadvantage there
0: okay good to know um so let's get into some of the basics um criminal law 101 what is the difference between a misdemeanor charge and a felony charge?
1: So a misdemeanor charge is, is a lesser, is a kind of a, well, I'm not gonna say minor, but it is, it is a less uh, egregious crime. It's a crime that, where a sentence can be, it's maximum of one year county jail, um, penny theft, DUI, Simple battery, those are examples of misdemeanors. Uh, the maximum sentence is, one year in the county jail, that's a misdemeanor. Uh, felony, those are more serious. You got murder, robbery, rape, uh, burglary. Those have, and the consequences there, the sentencing consequences are state prison. Okay, so in the misdemeanors, the counties have jails and the counties house the misdemeanor offenders once if, if the if the robber or murderer is convicted and he's sentenced to the prison he goes to state prison there's 33 of them i think in california the most famous uh you know san clinton folsom refer to those those are state prisons and they house the convicted felons
0: got it and um, how about expungement? What does that mean?
1: So expungement is a, is a nice tool to allow the person who's convicted of a misdemeanor and some felonies to have the conviction wiped off their, their record. Now, the record is, there's two types of records, one for law enforcement and one for the general public. Uh, once you're convicted, that'll remain on your record for law enforcement purposes. it will always be on a criminal rap sheet because we will we will always know that that person was convicted of let's say a theft or, or a felony. But for, for civil purposes, if you want to be able to apply for a job or apply to a rent an apartment or whatever and you've received an expungement, you can honestly say, truthfully say, you haven't been convicted. How do you get an expungement? You basically um, satisfy all terms of probation. You don't reoffend during the period of probation, okay? And then you can ask for expungement, and it's automatic if you've done everything they'd asked you to do during probation.
0: Are there certain crimes that cannot be expunged?
1: Of course, uh, violent felonies, sex, sex offenses cannot be expunged. Um there might be uh there was an exception to that but um that gets, gets a little detailed but basically violent felonies and uh sexual sex offenses um cannot be expunged with minor exceptions
0: Got it. And um inmates conversations whether in county jail or state prison are those recorded?
1: Generally yes. Um between yeah, they're and, and they're they're notified that they could be recorded too. Um, of course, attorney-client, attorney-inmate telephone calls are not recorded, um, but but conversations between the inmate and family or friends, those are those are generally recorded.
0: Yeah, I, I found that really interesting. I listened to a lot of. Um criminal law podcasts. And it's amazing to me, they notify the inmates that they're being recorded, um, and they still say stupid stuff that ends up um, coming back to haunt them.
1: <laughs> You're exactly right. I mean, we, we do listen, and then many times, sometimes we get these little pearls of conversations, and, and it's uh, pretty powerful when you throw that in front of the jury. It's uh, tantamount to a confession.
0: Yeah, and I think it's even posted right there by the telephones, right, that it's being recorded. Not
1: only that, but the recording, uh, when, when the phone is being dialed or when there's a, the connection is being made, there's a recording that says, this phone call may be recorded. It says it right there so that both parties can hear it, but yet they, they talk as though it's not recorded. Interesting.
0: Yeah, it is. It's fascinating. Um, can you explain the burden of proof what exactly does proof beyond a reasonable doubt really mean
1: those are those are three or four words uh, or four, that's a whole sentence it's been around for quite a long time and it's it's basically proof that it's okay so in in that same jury instruction proof beyond reasonable doubt it talks about what it isn't anytime you, you figure out what something is by 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 finding what it is not. It is not all possible doubt. It is not imaginary doubt. It's that doubt that leaves the juror with an abiding conviction that the person is, in fact, guilty. Abiding means, of course, it will stay with you for coming. In other words, the juror says, well, I, I feel confident that, you know, today, tomorrow, a week from now, a month from now, I'll still feel the same. Um, I'm not just I'm not impressed here by the, um, the you know the tears of the victim or this you know, the sentiments of the uh, prosecutor here, but I think based upon the evidence, the, the entire body of evidence, there's no way I'm going to change my mind about his guilt. Um, that's proof beyond a reasonable doubt.
0: Yeah, and I think what's confusing to most people is they want a like a percentage, like for example the the main standards of proof there's preponderance of the evidence which is you know 51 percent, and that's used a lot in in civil trials and then there's another one i think clear and convincing evidence and proof beyond a reasonable doubt which is the highest standard you can't really put a percentage on it and i think that's what confuses a lot of people
1: you're exactly right those are again those are words and and, um you know many times it comes down to who do you believe? Do you believe this person or do you believe that person? Um you know, every day we, we make decisions. I mean, if you you know, if you have children or whatever, the children are arguing about who hit who first, and you know, you basically decide and you're convinced in your mind that uh Johnny hit Sally first, and so Johnny, you gotta you gotta have time out. We make these decisions every day and it endures to too, and it basically comes down to who you believe. What 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 helps jurors make this decision is the jury instruction that basically says if there are two reasonable interpretations of the evidence, one leading to innocence and one leading to guilt, you must, you must go with innocence. So that helps jurors a little bit. So as prosecutors, what we do, we try to create a narrative that's reasonable, all the facts fit together, pointing to guilt. But then we show that the defense, if they do put on a defense, their narrative is unreasonable for the following reasons. And we would list those reasons, showing the jurors that it's unreasonable to believe that, you know, the defendant wasn't there. It's unreasonable because his fingerprint was there, We had his DNA there, even though his mother says that he was watching television that night, you know at her house Um, that would be unreasonable so when you contrast you know a reasonable story with an unreasonable story that will assist help the jury make a decision
0: got it and one of the fundamental principles of criminal law is something called mens rea what does that mean
1: that means a guilty mind literally that means a guilty mind and there's a little bit of controversy these days over crimes that are what are called strict liability. Uh, most of your crimes, is a guilty mind. If you reach out and punch somebody in the face, obviously you have a, you know, your, your mental thought is, I want to hurt that person. Boom, that's a guilty mind. If you want to have premeditation to murder somebody, if you want to premeditate and murder somebody, you want to think up a plan to kill them, that's a guilty mind. But an example of, let's say, you know, strict liability where there's no mens rea, but we still attribute criminal behaviors. Let's say a person's working at a chemical factory and he comes to work and he's told to he hose down the sidewalk and he hoses down the, the the work area and it's caustic chemicals going down the drain to the ocean and the health department catches this and there's a criminal statute that prohibits that and all of a sudden he has a criminal record, but he didn't have a guilty mind. And so there's 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 a large there's a pretty significant movement to try to you know make it so that we attribute a guilty mind to a criminal conviction. But but there are strict liability crimes on the books still.
0: Absolutely and I and I want to get into that um, but just to back up a little bit um basically intent is uh, very important under the law. That's why we, there's different sen- sentencing guidelines for premeditated murder, um, ver- you know, cold-blooded killers versus uh, heat of passion crimes. Is that is that accurate?
1: Yes, uh, <clears throat> murder, if you put it on the spectrum, let's say you put them on the spectrum you have uh, homicide on the spectrum, if you have a vehicular, Manslaughter case where a person is, is inattentive and runs somebody down and kills somebody. That's a homicide. But on, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have premeditated, planned, uh, killing of a person. That's the, on the other side of the spectrum, that's the premeditated murder. That's the worst. And so in between there, you have various degrees of homicide, uh, where a person, maybe they get in a bar fight and, uh, they, Somebody just punishes somebody till they're senseless, and that person dies. Didn't didn't intend to kill him. There was no intent to kill, but his actions were so egregious and so offensive. We're we're gonna we're gonna punish that person, but it, it's not a first-degree murder. He's not going to face life in prison or death penalty, but he's going to face a sentence <laughs> commensurate with his mens rea, his criminal intent, his thinking.
0: Exactly, okay, so now let's talk about the statutory crimes. This really fascinates me. Um, This is also sometimes called felony murder. Is that accurate? It can fall into that category? There is the felony murder
1: rule in California. Um, It's somewhat controversial these days. Only about 20 states in the United States still have the felony murder rule. Uh, Basically, it goes like this if you commit a felony and during the commission of that felony uh somebody dies okay um and i'll give you an example in a minute if somebody dies you can be convicted of murder in the first degree um let me give you an example you go into a convenience store and you point a gun at the the clerk um and ask for the money and something startles you or you get nervous, and while you're robbing that store, you have no intent to kill that person. Uh, Something happens where your gun goes off. Some, you know, one of your partners bumps you or you get in a fight and the gun discharges and it kills either the clerk or somebody, you know, a bystander. Um, Even though you didn't intend to kill anybody, you, a person died during the commission of that felony. What's and that's that's that murder in the first degree why is that murder it's murder because when you commit a felony when you do a serious and there's only certain felonies that give rise to felony murder not all felonies when you commit certain ro- certain felonies like robbery rape okay uh burglary the the crime you're doing is such is is so dangerous and so fraught with danger where you the law is going to imply infer that you should have known that somebody could die and there there lies the murder aspect to it i see i think but again states are abolishing the felony murder california still has it
0: got it no i think your example is a good example for maybe leaning towards justifying the felony murder rule i think about arson which which, um arson i think falls under the felony murder is that is that correct
1: um you know i'm gonna have to plead ignorance on that i haven't prosecuted an arson case in some time and i have to look that up but it sounds to me like it should because obviously when you light a building on fire even though you're not trying intending to kill somebody it clearly could result in somebody's death and i believe you're right but i'd have to look that up
0: okay i just think of the example in my head that that Kind of bothers me about the felony murder rule is I think about somebody who's trying to commit insurance fraud, which is terrible, and they they should be prosecuted for that. But you know, let's say they try to burn down their their barn, and uh, they go in there and they and they scream, "Hey, I hope nobody's in here. I'm gonna burn this thing down." You know, they're not trying to harm anybody, but they do it, and it turns out somebody's sleeping up in the attic. You know, they could be charged with uh, with murder in that uh, in that scenario.
1: Yeah, that's true. That is true. But let me add a little bit to your uh, example there. Firefighters are going to come and try and put out that fire, and um, they're going to go in there and try and save you know try to save people. They don't know what's going on, and uh, firemen firefighter could get uh, hurt, um, and he could die. So if arson is one of the serious or types of felonies that give rise to felony murder, um, I think there's there's many uh, situations where death could result.
0: That's a good point. Let me, let me try another one. Okay. <laughs> How about if you are the getaway driver um, to a robbery, and your co-conspirator says, hey, I'm going to go in there, I don't have a gun, um, I'm just going to try to get... 20 bucks or whatever, and it turns out the guy lied to you and he did have a gun and there was a murder inside the store. Could that driver get uh, prosecuted for felony murder?
1: That's a, that's a very good question, and it's um, just recently, I mean, up, up to about two or three years ago, uh, you probably could, but now there's a new statute that says um, anybody, you know, charged with felony murder, is not going to be convicted unless they aided and abetted or had a hand in that murder uh a, a tangential or a lesser player in the in the scheme of things you know if it's if there's a co-conspirator and that person did not aid or abet in the killing or aid and abet in the preparation of the killing then that person is not going to be subject to the felony murder
0: okay fascinating so so that just that statue
1: just came down about a year or two years ago and and actually it's reaching back and people who have been convicted in are in state prison on the felony murder or having an opportunity to have their cases uh, looked at and bring back to court to see if they in fact were part and parcel of the murder they aided and vetted in the murder or not and if they did not then their conviction is going to be modified
0: okay fascinating um here's another question i always had does everybody have a right to a public defender or or are there only certain um crimes that are eligible for you to get a public defender
1: everybody everybody has a right to an attorney okay everybody has a if they don't if they can't afford an attorney uh and they're indigent you know can't afford when they're indigent the uh County or the state will provide one for them. Public defender, um, yes, uh, and that comes with any any time there's going to be incarceration, possible incarceration, gives rise to an attorney. Um, traffic offenses, where there's just a monetary uh, liability, no incarceration, then no no public defender is afforded then. But when you when you face prison or incarceration county jail or whatever you're entitled to a public defender a very good uh book on this one is is the uh, vivian's trumpet um mm. it was a book published years ago by anthony lewis and it's a really really good read on how that how that the public defender um, representation of indigent people got started uh started out of florida but uh you know, California had had it by then, but some states didn't. They didn't provide public defenders to indigent uh,
0: offenders. And Gideon, that that is the famous Supreme Court case that said um, you have a right to uh, to a defense attorney, correct? Yeah, essentially.
1: Yeah. yeah. Gideon uh, was the name of the defendant, and he petitioned the court uh, a handwritten letter from prison. Um, and the Supreme Court gave it to a. Uh, A guy named Abe Fortas, and Abe Fortas ran with it and brought the case before the Supreme Court. It's a really good read.
0: Yeah, good suggestion. Okay, here's my next question. Um, Is it possible, if you're a criminal defendant, to opt for a a trial by judge instead of a trial by jury?
1: You have a choice, either by judge or by jury. Um, uh, The prosecution also has a choice. Um in other words if let's say the let's say the um defense attorney the defendant wants a trial by judge um we would have to waive our right to a jury trial also we prosecutors have the right to a jury trial also interesting so, so both sides have to agree um but we we would almost always go with a court trial a judge trial, but yeah, everybody has a right to a jury trial or judge trial.
0: So what happens if the prosecution wants a trial by judge and the defendant wants a trial by jury? They, the okay. defendant wins, correct? Yeah, we go to jury. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and have to agree. and uh, vice versa. If the, the defendant wants a trial by judge and the prosecutor wants a trial by jury, how does that work?
1: 99% of the time we would go with the judge let's say if the judge has expressed some sort of bias or we sense that there's a problem, um, you know, there's problems with judges once in a while, um, we, <clears throat> we would want trial by jury <clears throat> and um, instead of that judge, but it's, it's, that, that's extremely, extremely rare.
0: Interesting, okay. So not, not too many criminal defendants want uh, trial by judge in your experience. I'd
1: say less than 3%, less than three or 4%. Um, Sometimes, you know, if, if, if the charge has, you know, has real sensitive issues or maybe there's some racial overtones and uh, the prosecution has the upper hand on the sentiments in that situation, uh defense attorney might steer that defendant into a court trial if they think the jury might be biased or prejudiced against that defendant for, for whatever reason.
0: Okay. Now, in the Constitution, it says that uh, criminal defendants have a right to a speedy trial. And I've always wondered about that. I mean, what does that really mean? Are there, is there like a time frame where, you, where a defendant has a right to, to get to trial?
1: Absolutely. Um, in uh, misdemeanor cases, if the person is in custody, he has a right to a speedy trial within 30 days of his arraignment. So once he's arrested, brought before a judge, arraigned, advised of the charges, and he does not waive time, he does not give up that speedy trial right, we have to try within 30 days. If he's out of custody, he can demand a trial, a speedy trial, and we have to put a put a trial on within 45 days. Oh wow. In felonies, once the case has passed a preliminary hearing, He's entitled to a preliminary hearing, and that's a that's a bare bones showing of the facts, where the judge makes sure that the prosecution has enough evidence to impanel the jury. Once we're past the preliminary hearing stage, and he's arraigned on the felony charges either by indictment or information, we call it, he's entitled he's entitled to a jury trial or trial within 60 days on a felony. Um, and that, that, that happens eh, probably five ten percent of the time. We get we get speedy trials. We have to put the trial on. We better have all our evidence ready to go, and so we want to make sure we have it before we, you know, charge them.
0: Sure. Another question I have are um, regarding plea deals. Um, who has the authority to make those types of offers?
1: Well, so every deputy DA that works in the courts. Has the authority? Is given the authority, presumably, by the supervisor, by the elected DA, to enter into plea bargains. Okay. Uh, of course, you know we, we we're trained. We, you know, we're we we're hopefully trained and and by the boss and by the supervisors to do the right thing. So, the prosecutor can uh, plea bargain. That has a bad connotation. I'm going to tell you what 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 a good what a why we plea bargain these cases in just a minute, but the prosecutor has the right to offer a plea deal, plea bargain to the defense attorney and the defendant to resolve the case short of the trial. So that's so. Yeah, every every prosecutor has that authority to do that.
0: Got it. So, like a, a detective or a police officer, they don't have that type of authority to to offer a plea deal. Is that accurate?
1: That's very accurate, and that comes into play when the when the when the investigator or the police officer may be interrogating a defendant. Exactly, they, they'll promise something, or they want to promise him in exchange for some information. That's that's wrong. That's uh, that's that's going to be that's going to be probably thrown out. That's uh, going to coerce a maybe a false confession. So no, police officers, investigators do not have that authority.
0: Got it. Interesting. Okay, that leads me to my next question. And this is, to me, the most troublesome part of our, well, one of the most troublesome part of our uh, criminal law system in America. I don't understand why police officers, detectives are allowed to lie to people in the interrogation room. And what I mean by that is they can say to somebody they're interrogating, hey, we found the gun with your fingerprints on it, when in reality, they may not have that evidence, correct?
1: This is correct. Um, this is a tactic that has been sanctioned by the, by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has ruled on this in a number of cases that police officers can, and they use the ru- word ruse, R-U-S-E, kind of a, a euphemism for lying, if you will. But the Supreme Court has authorized this. And police officers do it. Why? Why is this allowed? So, first of all, let's contrast the ruse or the lie situation to coercion. You know, um, outright lying to the defendant. Well, if you if you if you tell us where the body is, we I'll make sure that you don't get charged for murder. We'll just charge you for whatever manslaughter. That's 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 wrong. You can't do that. Um, Threatening, you know, taking away somebody's children if you don't tell me right now, I'm gonna, we're gonna go get your children and put them in put them into uh, wealth uh, child, you know, protective services. That's coercion. That's that's not allowed. But what is allowed, and is is uh, situations where you say, well, I think we, you know, I think we got, we're gonna look at some video, and sure enough, we have you on video coming out of that store, or we have your fingerprints inside that store, when, or we have your DNA. Um so it's it's important to get to to solve crime and courts I think have a have an interest in getting crime solved. Um we don't want false confessions, you know, we want um true confessions, we want to solve crime, and so the, the courts balance the need to solve crimes with the use of that tactic. Um now did you know is there sufficient evidence other than him telling us that there is evidence of his guilt and you put all that together um, and the judge who's supposed to referee these these cases and referee that those uh, evidence that comes into the jury they're in charge of making sure that this was not coercive not didn't go beyond the means of of um, Fair play on this thing, or not. I should say, police tactics it didn't 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 amount to coercion, but and, there, and there's sufficient other evidence to corroborate or to uh, to convict this, this person other than a bare bones confession.
0: I understand. It just seems to me, you know, I don't want my government officials lying to me. I want to trust my government,
1: <laughs> right? No, I get it. I get it. But um, I mean, I could give you example after example where you you would say, well, yeah. I'd, glad the police were able to find that that body of that little five-year-old girl um um, i'm so glad you know when you when you balance you know the the benefits of solving crime and and making victims whole and helping the victims against that tactic where in fact the person was in fact guilty okay are we going to allow are we going to handcuff the police where they can't Where they have to do everything perfect or are we going to allow a little bit of of um uh, you know this this liberties to allow the police to get at the bottom and really solve that crime. So it's it's a balancing test. And it's been it's, uh, the Supreme Court um has sanctioned this and uh it is probably a um something that's a little distasteful. Um we there's another example of surreptitiously recording uh people without them knowing it. Law enforcement is entitled to do this. Some juries don't like that. Um, I had to volunteer a jury on whether or not they're gonna be okay with listening to a a recording of a uh, a defendant who uh, he didn't know he was being recorded, but um, police didn't tell him he was being recorded. But he basically confessed to the crime, but a couple of jurors didn't like the fact that the police didn't tell him he was recorded. Well, it's allowed that person was excused by the judge and we went forward with the trial.
0: Sure. No, I think that's understandable. The lying just bothers me. It, and to me, it's like you're, you're going up against the government. The government has all the resources and power and the constitution was set up, you know, really to protect defendants. There's a high burden of proof. And it just seems to me like a cheap shot, you know, like you should be able to prove your case um, without lying to people, but you do make some, some very powerful arguments.
1: Uh, no, I, I, I told it that that is a that is a uh, uh, an area of law which I, I guess would call a gray area.
0: Yeah, gray area. There you go. Um, along the same lines, how often are jailhouse snitch testimony used in reality? In your experience?
1: Not very often. Um, what is what you can't do is the police what the police cannot do is tap an inmate on the shoulder and say hey look we want you to go in there we're going to put you in this cell with this fella and we want you to question him and try and get this confession that that person is an agent of the police who becomes for all practical purposes a police officer and any questioning done by that inmate is is going to be prohibited of, You know, because there's no Miranda warning there's no you know that that guy, that person's a police agent what but contrast that with a person who's in custody and says says to his attorney says hey i just heard this my, my cellmate tell me he killed his wife and baby um i i would like to I, i'll testify and maybe they maybe, maybe i can get out of jail a little earlier. Uh let's go tell the prosecutor. You know. And so that person is a jailhouse person. He's a snitch. He comes with this information. We got other evidence, but we don't have any confession out that murder of his wife and baby. But now this person is presented to us, of course we're going to use him, um, and we're going to give that person who may be in on burglary charges, a lesser charge. We're gonna give him a lesser sentence or maybe a break if he wants to come in to testify.
0: And is the jury told that um, the person giving testimony, the jailhouse snitch, is given a lesser sentence?
1: Absolutely, right from okay. the start. Um, I um, I had a case where it was a bank robbery. Um, we convicted the one of the robbers with the gun. He went to prison for 22 years and tried to offer a plea deal but the defense attorney didn't want one. He was convicted of bank robbery with four or five tellers in there. Um, And I thought, you know, that was a pretty heavy sentence but that was a sentence after a jury trial because there was like four or five victims. Um, And then we got some evidence that that one of the tellers may have been involved. Um, So now we, we were gonna focus on the teller and. And so we had some evidence through phone calls that the teller had set this up, okay? But I needed that, that the bank robber who went to, to prison, I needed i needed his help. Uh, long story short, the defense attorney agreed to produce that, that, that uh, convicted felon. I, I told him, I said, I'll knock six, eight years off his sentence if he wants to come in and testify. Sure enough, he did. And um, he was very powerful. He was, but he, he testified to stuff that only he would know, um, and the jury convicted the teller. Um, oh. And uh, that was a pretty interesting trial. And uh, right at the start, I had to question the jury, are they going to give this teller a fair shot, I mean, this convicted felon a fair shot and listen to him and see if uh, what he testifies to is corroborated by other stuff and see if you can put this together Will you listen to him or will you just reject him out of hand and, and close your ears to him the minute he takes a stand. They, they all said, "We'll listen. We promise we'll listen." And they did. And uh, he he uh, he told some. Uh, he gave us some evidence that was pretty positive, and they, they convicted the teller.
0: Well, and as long as there's full disclosure, it goes to credibility, and it's you know it's up to the jury to decide, right?
1: Absolutely, and that's that's you know that's the bottom line. We have twelve. People, you bring off you know off citizens to come to court, and they're the they're the they're the bulwark of this uh, criminal justice system. Nobody goes to jail or prison without twelve people saying he's guilty. Twelve people, unanimous. That's pretty pretty powerful.
0: Yeah, that is. Um, I listened to this podcast. It's called Junk Science, and I think the guy. Um, who does it also is affiliated with the innocence project in one of the episodes that was really fascinating to me was the, the junk science episode where they call into question these so-called experts. um, And I think they talk about how it only takes about 40 hours for some of these courses for you to be labeled an expert and whether it's arson or blood splatter or bite mark expert testimony, um how often are these experts actually used in your experience
1: okay so that's a very interesting area first of all uh the first the threshold question is uh does the judge think that the jury needs help in in filtering through and understanding the evidence okay so let's say um we got you know um fingerprint evidence that's on a gun, okay? Um, Does the jury have the ability to look at, you know, a a picture of a fingerprint? Um, They've gone through all the technical training that it takes to analyze the little points of identification with the latent fingerprint versus the fingerprint from the gun, no. So the judge was gonna allow an expert to testify because he thinks that the jury needs that help. That allows the expert to express an opinion as to whether or not the fingerprint over here, the latent fingerprint, the rolled fingerprint, okay, I mean the roll fingerprint from the defendant is identical to the fingerprint off the gun. So there so first of all, the judge has to make that call. Now, what makes an expert? If the person's gone through training, and again, this is up to the judge, uh and it doesn't take much to be an expert. It takes training, experience, maybe previous testimony. Um, but then the ultimate thing, the ultimate thing is this. The jury listens to the training. The jury listens to the... Uh, and it, it, the jury decides, does that expert really know what he's talking about? See, the judge is not going to prohibit a defense attorney from bringing in uh, an expert with minimum or with not too much training. The judge will say, well, if you want to bring that person in and talk to them about their qualification, I'll let the jury decide how powerful that is. But the judge doesn't want to prohibit evidence from coming in unless it's patently unfair, unless it's ridiculous. So a judge allows it to come in, then the jury decides which 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 experts they uh, they're gonna believe. They have this thing called dueling experts. One expert will say one thing, another expert will say the opposite, and uh, the the jury has to decide who they're going to believe. Got it. I don't know if I answered your whole question there yet. But no,
0: I think I think it it, it does. Um, it sounds like those types of experts are probably not used very often.
1: And you know, you mentioned bite marks and blood spatter. Um, there's a thing called Kelly Fry. Um, Test of the Dauber test, and basically, you know, there has to be what they're going to testify to has to be supported by scientific uh, 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 scientific corroboration. There has to be uh, peer review on what they're testifying to, whether or not it's really a a science or it's a pseudoscience. Right. Uh, I think bite mark evidence has been pretty much discredited. Yeah. Um, think they've they tried to discredit fingerprint evidence. But that's solid. Ballistic evidence, I think, is solid. Um, blood splatter evidence. Um, I don't know if that's really been passed the Kelly Fry test, whether or no. not it's accepted in the scientific community as really um, substantial, dependable evidence.
0: Got it. Fair enough. We're running short on time here, so I'll get to the last question. And it's the toughest question. It's I guess more of a, a, a policy question, but I'd certainly love to get your perspective on this. I mean, there's certainly a big problem in this country with mass incarceration. Um, if you put it in perspective, we have the most prisoners than any other country in the world. And this is alarming when you consider that China has about 1 billion more people than us and we still incarcerate more, more people than them. Um, why do you think we have this problem? And what would be your solution to fix the crisis?
1: Well, first of all, I don't consider incarcerating convicted people who commit crimes a problem. Okay. Um, if, some, if somebody's guilty of a crime and the punishment has been decided upon by the people and the legislature as to what the sentence is gonna be, you know, that's it. Uh, do we have lengthy prison sentences? Yes. Um, why, do, why do we have lengthy prison sentences where people stay in prison for a long time? I don't know if you're old enough to remember the Polly Class case with Richard Allen Davis. No. It generated the three strikes. You've heard of that. Oh, yes. Okay. So Richard Allen Davis was a three or four time convicted felon for serious violent crimes. He did his time, he got out, and then he went and kidnapped and killed Polly Clark. Well, we didn't have three strikes, but he, 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 was on his fourth or fifth violent felony, and the, the people of the state of California initiated a, a, a initiative where they were going to vote into this three strikes. If your, if your third strike is a violent strike, you're going to go to prison for 25 years for life. Um, the legislature, the California legislature, seeing that this was going to happen, they jumped in front of the initiative and passed it to the legislature. So you have the legislature which is answer which which answers to the public, they want to be re-elected. So they're going to pass these laws that are going to be long prison sentences because the people still want them. People in the state of California still have the death penalty. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um just, just today. In the Wall Street Journal, I see where police reform bills are being stalled in the California legislature. Why is that? Well, because the, legis- the very, very liberal legislators, um, have to answer to the public and police unions. They're not, they're not, they don't want to pass these laws to handcuff police because they know that public sentiment still is supporting police and strong law and order. So, Mass incarceration, I think, is a misnomer. Um, we have people in prison because they committed crimes that the people, the legislature and everybody agrees. This is your sentence. Okay. Don't do it. Don't commit the crime. I don't know about other countries. I don't know if China gives us the statistics. I don't know what their criminal justice system is, but every state in the union has its own laws as to how long the prison sentences are. And those laws have been passed by the legislature, by and, and people, you know, the public has elected those legislators. So that's where we are. I mean, uh, there's been, yeah, so I, don't know, that's been, I, I could go on and on on that sure, topic sure. and uh, it's very interesting to me, but I think it's a misnomer.
0: Okay, well, hey, I appreciate your perspective I really appreciate your time um, educating my listeners on this Criminal Law 101 episode. Uh, Much appreciated. I hope you stay safe and be well.
1: Thank you, Ian. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.
0: Take care. Okay. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I thank you so much for listening to Lockdown Law. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to, constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error free.